Well, well, well. Good evening, everyone. Uh, man, we are jumping back in tonight into the journey that we've been on here at Mosaic for a while now uh, in this extraordinary letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. And he wrote this letter to the church in Philippi in response to that church sending Epaphras down to come see Paul uh, because they had some questions that they were wrestling with. In particular, uh, the church in Philippi lived in a city that Rome sent most of its really high-end military and political leaders that had lived a faithful life to Rome and had uh, and were now retiring, they would send them to Philippi, give them some free land there, right on the Aegean Sea, northern Macedonia, and say, man, thank you for your service. So Philippi was a sought-after zip code, if you will, in the Roman Empire, um, and one that by its definition uh, was a place that held some of the most loyal people to the Roman way of life than you can imagine. So into this uh, context, a church is born when Paul went on his um, second journey and he uh, headed down Macedonia. He started a church in Philippi, uh, was part of starting one there. And this church has now developed over the years and they are within the city, a space that in many ways, both by the one that they worship, this King Jesus, and by the philosophies of the kingdom to which King Jesus belongs, uh, they really stand in many ways opposed to the way of Rome. And so they are wrestling as a church on how they are to live their lives uh, in this context of a culture that's philosophies uh, stand uh, in opposition against the philosophies of the kingdom of God. They also are in a context where a number of different religious sects are moving throughout the known world now, uh, even within the uh, Jewish and Christian world, and are bringing to different churches different thoughts or views on what the gospel really is or who Jesus really is or how they should really live. So, for example, the Judaizers who would often come to churches now where Gentiles, non-Jews, had come to know Jesus and Jesus was their Messiah. And, and they would tell them, listen, you can have Jesus as a Messiah, but he is a Jewish Messiah for Jewish people. So if you want him to be your Messiah, you got to become Jewish first. Get circumcised and live the uh, righteous Jewish life. And then you can call Jesus your Messiah. So they had groups like that coming around and sharing uh, a, a different version of the gospel. So they kind of sent Epaphras to Paul saying, how, how do we do all this? We got all these different views of the gospel that are super different. We've got a culture that is opposed to the kingdom of God and we are trying to live faithfully within this, uh, but we're not sure how. And so Paul responds to that set of questions with this letter, the, the letter of Philippians. And uh, in this letter, um, as he sends this letter out, as a quick recap, since we've been out of the letter for a little while, uh, this is sort of the sequence he runs in this letter. Uh, he starts off in his greeting in the first part of the letter by just saying, I just want you all to know, love your heart. Love the questions you're asking. Love the way you want to live a faithful life following Jesus in a, uh, in, in a challenging culture. Write questions. Everything's great. In fact, I am thrilled to be partnering with you in the gospel. It is incredible that we are both in our own contexts expanding the kingdom of God and, and, and preaching the gospel. So super, super excited about you guys. And then right after that, he says, now 
um, I am, am, of course, in a different context than you are in because I'm in prison. Uh, at this time, Paul was in prison in Rome. And like often happens in even our thinking as Christians, we have this idea in our head that when God uh, is for us and with us, that he will somehow allow for our circumstances or our plans, especially when their intent is faithfulness to him. So Paul was trying to get to Spain to preach the gospel there. That seems like a fantastic plan and a, a great and faithful plan. And now he's stuck in prison in Rome and he's been stuck in prison for years. So the question does kind of emerge, if, if God is with you and for you, how come you're stuck in prison? Like, how come things aren't going well? And so Paul writes and he says, by the way, you've heard I'm in prison. And you might think that because I'm in prison, that is actually stifling the great gospel work. But it's not at all. It turns out that right here in prison, the gospel is advancing tremendously and God's kingdom is expanding. And Paul lays the platter that he's going to get to later in Philippians that says, wherever you find yourself, whatever circumstances you happen to be in, you can actually see the gospel expand there. You don't have to sit around and say, I'm not in a great set of circumstances, so I'm waiting for something good to happen so I can uh, carry the gospel. No, 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 no. Where you are right now, whatever they are, your circumstances, relational dynamics, resource challenges, they are opportunities in which the kingdom of God expands and the gospel moves out. And Paul says, I, like you, am in a challenging situation, but here the gospel moves as well. And then Paul moves from that little space and he says, the reason, whether in prison here or in Philippi there or any other context you find yourself, we can live for the gospel is because our lives are no longer about us. Our lives are about Christ. Now that he has rescued us, to live is Christ. To die is gain, but to live is Christ. And so he's like, look, this ultimately circles around when you or I get to a point in our mind where we say, my clarity now as I understand the gospel is that my life is not about building a life for myself, but it is about participating in a life that is for the glory of Christ, the expansion of his kingdom, the movement of light, life, and freedom into a dark world. And the fact that I get to be part of that is insanely awesome. And when we do that, then it doesn't matter where we find ourselves because we will live for him. And then right after that, Paul says, okay, now if this is the life we're going to live, because life's complicated, right? There's other humans involved. They're kind of weird and, and hard sometimes. And there's circumstances involved and they're weird and hard sometimes. And there's resources and lack of resources involved. And that's hard sometimes. So we want to live in this life that says, you know, I live for Christ and, and to live is Christ. But the truth is the second we wake up, that's already a challenge. So the question that's begged is, how do I do this? And Paul says, okay, if you want to live this life, your attitude, your way of life should be the same as Jesus's. Look to your rabbi, look to your king. And what did he do? He took his prerogatives, his rights, and he emptied himself of those rights for the sake of our redemptive story. And so as you walk into life, you have a set of rights, uh, the right to be this, the right to be that, the right to have happiness, the right to be... But those are actually now a privilege you get to set aside whenever necessary for the sake of others, for the glory of Christ. So have your attitude be the same as that of Jesus. And then when we got to the end of that part of the letter, you might ask like me, okay, that sounds wonderful and romantic and beautiful. I am going to set my rights aside for the sake of Jesus, being just like him. But that's super hard. 
Because every second, everything in you screams, you have the right to be happy. And these other humans aren't making you happy. Get rid of them. Not like kill them, just like, you know, boundaries. Um, And so... Uh, Paul says, man, living this life where our attitude is set in the same way as Jesus, it's difficult, it's complicated, it's hard. So how do you do it? And then Paul writes and says, so here's what I'm gonna do. I am gonna send you Timothy to come hang out with you. And I want you to follow Timothy as he follows Jesus. And then I'm gonna send you uh, Epaphras to come back as well. And I want you to follow Epaphras as he follows Jesus. And in fact, I'm gonna come as soon as I can. And I want you to follow me as I follow Jesus. So what does Paul say? If we're going to follow Jesus and have our attitudes the same as his, we're going to need each other to stir one another up and each other to look to, to say, man, where is it that you can be someone I can lean into when I'm wrestling to be like Jesus? And you can kind of go, come on. And how can I be a person you lean into when you're struggling to be like Jesus? And I can say, come on. And so he's like, if you're going to do this, we got to do this together. And then in the letter, he says, okay, and not only should we look to Jesus and his attitude, but we need to keep our eyes and our minds set on the true gospel. And that's when he kind of wrote about the Judaizers coming in and the self-righteousness. He's like, any gospel, any version of the gospel that adds anything but Jesus is a false gospel. And any version of the gospel that says the way you know that God likes you or loves you or is proud of you is by this, this set of things is a false gospel. Because the way we know we are valuable to Jesus is that he came, he lived, he died and he rose from the dead for us. And he revealed himself to us and we know him now. That's it. And if they say, well, you know, uh, when you are prosperous, then you know God is blessing you. False gospel. Oh, you know, when you're suffering a ton for Jesus, he's blessing you. False gospel. It's always only Jesus. And so he's like, make sure the gospel you're holding to is that one. And the way we know it's that one, remember he wrote, is that Jesus is everything and becomes everything to us. Paul said it this way. I consider all things rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. Man, everything in your life should bend toward Jesus becoming everything to you and everything else becoming nothing to you. And that's a journey. And right when we get there, we're like, whoa. I mean, that's crazy. Like imagine getting there where nothing matters to you except Jesus. How do I do it? And then Paul, I love this in the letter. He's like, now here's the deal. I haven't even attained that yet. I love that Paul says that to us. Not that I've attained that. Everything I just told you, you should do. I'm not there yet. But what am I doing? I am forgetting what is behind and I'm pressing on toward that, toward Jesus becoming my everything. And every time I recognize in my life that something holds in me value beyond or next to or the same as Jesus, I strive to squash it and strive to place all of my value, security, and everything else I am in Jesus. That's the life I'm living. And we should all live that life. And he even says, for those of you that disagree with me, don't worry, you'll mature. I love it. You're just a little immature right now. That's okay. But you know, as you mature, you'll be like, yep, nope, Paul's right. That's the life we should live. And that gets us to where we are now and where we enter the letter again. So Paul has just said, man, listen, this is what I'm doing. I haven't yet attained it, but this is what I'm doing. I'm pursuing Jesus with everything I've got. And when I fail, I forget what is behind and I press on toward the goal of Jesus being my everything. And then 
he launches into the next section of this letter to say, so where does that leave us? So grab your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Philippians. And we are going to be in chapter three in verse 17, which is where we re-enter the letter after we left off earlier. So in Philippians chapter three, verse 12 through 16, that's the part where Paul just said, I forget what is behind. I strive toward what is ahead, the goal of having Jesus be my everything. And if you disagree with me, don't worry, you'll mature. Um, And then he ends there. And then he says this in verse 16 only, let us hold true to what we have attained. So he's like, "We, we, we have Christ, we're in Christ. Let us hold to that and let us pursue more of that. And then verse 17. So brothers or brothers and sisters, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So here Paul is again and saying, okay, so let me circle back. How are we as a people who follow Jesus going to engage in and sustain a life that is consistently moving toward a greater obsession with Jesus being our everything and consistently abandoning the notion that anything else is our security, our safety, our well-being. It is us saying, my well-being is not going to be found in a change of circumstance or a change of relational dynamic or a change of resource dynamic. My well-being is found in Jesus. And those other things are just opportunities in which I can make the gospel beautiful, regardless of which one I found myself in. Poverty, make the gospel beautiful. Prosperity, make the gospel beautiful. Health, sickness, imprisonment, free, hungry, well-fed, all of those can do. Those are not my well-being. And he's like, if you're going to do that sustainably, here's what I want you to do. I want you to look to me, Paul, as I strive, as I do. That will give you some inspiration, some consistency, someone to lean into that says, I follow Jesus and I watch you follow Jesus. And that spurs me on toward following Jesus. And then he says, and actually don't just look to me. Look to whom? Look to anyone around you who is living this life. Anyone who is saying, I am living my life each day in a consistent pattern of saying where I find myself counting on, standing on, uh, being safe in anything but Jesus. I'm going to recognize that and I'm going to strive toward eliminating that and strive toward Jesus. Find those people and follow them. So what Paul is getting at here again, is this thing we've been driving toward through this letter that God intended us to be in biblical community because without being in biblical community with each other, we cannot sustain the life of following Jesus well and consistently. In many ways, as we look at Jesus, this all makes sense because Jesus was on this planet in a physical body and his disciples, he was like, follow me, watch me pay attention to me and follow me. And then he left the planet in in his glorified body. But what did he do? He said, I'm leaving in this body right now, but I'm going to send my spirit and I'm going to be with you by my spirit residing where? In a new body. And what is that new body I'm residing in? 
the church, us, you and me. So in the most profound and wondrous way, we experience Jesus uniquely and beautifully as we watch him in each other. So what Paul's saying is, if you want to follow Jesus, find those other people that are following Jesus consistently like this and watch them lean into them. And hey, be one of the people that consistently follow Jesus so that what? The other people in your community can look to you and lean into you when they're struggling. This is how we are to do the journey we're on. And this is what will lead us to consistency. So then we ask ourselves, okay, uh, I get that. I I, I know who to look to, to follow. Those who are living according to what you just said in verse uh, 12 through 16. Look for those people, follow them. But as though Paul is saying, okay, I want to be abundantly clear on this because I don't want you to end up looking to someone and being confused about who you should lean into and follow because we are talking about humans, right? So we have Jesus in those humans by his spirit, but they're also still human. So it gets a little tricky because, you know, you don't just want to follow anybody. So how, how do we measure how we look to each other and say, who are the people that we're saying are actually living by the example that Paul laid out? So now what he's going to do is he's going to lay out for us what the other version looks like. And he's like, so these are the kinds of people you don't want to follow. If you see these patterns, don't follow that. And then you'll know what to follow uh, those who are following Jesus. So take a look what he says. He says, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. So he categorizes for us what a person would look like in their their actions and behaviors and words if they are not following the patterns that he's laid out for us that is following Jesus well. These are the kinds of people you you don't want to lean into and follow. He says, okay, so these these people, they are enemies of the cross. So the the question becomes, who is Paul talking about here? So different uh, commentators and historians uh, kind of have different ideas of who Paul's talking about because when he says, I've spoken often about these people to you and now even with tears, we ask who is Paul often spoken of that stands against the cross? Well, there's two categories of people that Paul has often spoken about. The first category are religious people that are bringing a gospel that is not the true gospel. The Judaizers being a good example of that. But throughout even biblical history, there are multiple philosophies and gospels that came to the table. And every time Paul spoke of those people as something to be weary of, avoided, don't engage, uh, enemies of the cross. So it is quite possible that what Paul's talking about here are those bringing a false gospel. So he's saying, be super aware of false gospels. But Paul also often speaks of the Gentile world, in other words, uh, the Greek or or, or Roman culture, as a, a world with a philosophy against the gospel and a way of life that is about themselves, selfish way of life, and that they are and their life is to be avoided. We are to engage with them to bring Jesus to them, but not to live like them. And so Paul has spoken of both these groups in this kind of context. So instead of us saying, 
in this case, which one is it? It actually makes a whole lot more sense considering the context of Philippi that Paul is speaking about both. He's saying anytime you encounter anyone that is either bringing a false gospel your way or a false philosophy that opposes the kingdom of God, that is an enemy to the very nature of the gospel, the very nature of the cross. So when you encounter false gospels, you know them to be enemies of the cross because they take the pure and beautiful nature of God's redemptive work on the cross and they add to it or they reorient it and shape it. So when you come to the cross and you bring with that gospel self-righteousness like the Judaizers do, as soon as you prove to Jesus the Messiah that you live a righteous and proper Jewish life, then he will be willing to choose you as one of his children. So he'll save you, but only after you prove to him that you're worth saving. Does that sound like the gospel and what Jesus did for us? No, it does not. So anytime you encounter a gospel that adds or reshapes, don't do it. So in our world today, we have a number of those buzzing around constantly. A prosperity gospel, for example, that comes in and watch how it adds. It says this, Jesus saves you, but once you're saved, depending on how faithfully you live or how faithful you are will depend on how prosperous he makes you. So the more prosperous you are, the more money you have, the more friends you have, the, the more wealth, you, uh, riches you have, the more, the, the, the more health you have, the more clearly God is happy with you. And what you, if you don't have those things, then God is not happy with you. So then take your money and give it to the people that God is happy with. And then God will give you a ton of money. Does that sound like a gospel? That's a false gospel because it's like your Jesus' delight in you is dependent on something you're doing and is expressed in how he, he, and how he engages with you. False gospel. Well, what about a poverty gospel though? A poverty gospel says, the more I suffer for Jesus, the more, the more I live in abject suffering, the more spiritual I am. You know, the sell all your possessions. And the, so what makes me more spiritual than somebody else is that I walk around in suffering and poverty. So then the ugliness of that turns into this idea that we roll into a parking lot and we see someone drive into the church in a nice new car and we're like, eh, they're like a half Christian. I mean, they clearly don't know what it means to follow Jesus because they spent money on a nice car. And so we start comparing and contrasting based on the spirituality of poverty. Well, that's a false gospel. It's not true. There's so many layers to that that, that divide in ways that should not be divided. I, so often I've engaged in these worlds and then you end up talking to the person that, that has that nice car and you find out they have a lot of resources that God gave to them through whatever sequence and they're great stewards of those resources and give tremendous amounts away and they wrestled with whether God was saying, you can step into that and they bought that car with cash because they had it while you, the poverty person who's proving how spiritually are by your clunker that you drive bought the clunker with debt that you shouldn't have bought it with in the first place and then you're like oh maybe actually the, the issue isn't what you wear what you drive how you neither prosperity nor poverty because what does Paul say can you make the gospel beautiful in prosperity yes can you make the gospel beautiful in poverty which is better which is more important which says more about you or God's love for you neither and none and so in everything, those are just two examples. Anytime you encounter a gospel that has anything in it but Jesus and his great work for you and his delight in you and his love for you because of his life, death and resurrection, you ought to see that gospel and go, don't follow that. Don't buy into that. Don't have any part of that. 
But then also he's like, and anytime you encounter anyone that you start noticing by the life they live, by the way they speak, by the things they do, that at the end of the day, they are bent on their own well-being, their own security, their own reality that creates safety. Be super cautious of following someone like that. Because we live in a world where all of us start in a space of lack of safety and insecurity. And so we are driven as humans to try to produce as much safety and security as possible. In fact, in our Western culture, specifically the American culture, in our very essence of what this country is built on, we actually have the statement, everybody has the right to pursue happiness, to be happy. And I'm like, not actually. That's not actually necessarily true. I mean, happiness is great. And God doesn't say, don't be happy. Otherwise, you're not spiritual. But he's like, well, hold on. That is, that, that's not. So here's what happens to us. If, if I have the right to be happy all the time, then anything that makes me unhappy after a while, I should have the right to get rid of it, abandon it, change it. So we become a people that looks at our circumstances and the other humans, our, our relationships. And we're like, I want to make sure that I can change circumstances to make me happy. And I can shift relationships to make me happy because I don't want to be unhappy. And so I need enough resources and enough influence to do that. So we become a culture that chases after fame and fortune because what does fame and fortune give us? Power. And what does power give us? The power to control circumstances and people. And we think if we can do all those things, then we will be well. And what he's saying is people that when they come to you and you're struggling with something and their big gravitation toward you is you deserve to be happy. So do these things careful. Because at the end of the day, though happiness is something, certainly throughout your life you will have much of because Jesus is doing great things in your life. It is not something that he says foundationally is what you're after because he gives you your well-being. Okay, so what he says is this. People, as he said, that are filling their own bellies, setting up their own kingdom, and people that are bringing false gospels, don't follow those people. Don't look to those people, even if they are in the church and carrying the idea of Christianity. And listen to me, you all, super important. Like as a pastor who has now spent decades sitting with people in some of their hard spaces where they are in a hard relationship or a hard circumstance or a hard resource challenge. And, we, and we're talking through in the context of that relationship or that circumstance or that resource. And it's clear that the gospel in that space is calling them uh, into a perseverance of sorts. I often hear from them. Oh, I talked to several of my Christian friends and they were like, get out. I'm like, yeah, because we all have empathy toward each other. No doubt we want each other to have as good a life as we can. But we put empathy and well-being ahead of the calling and beauty of the gospel into perseverance for the sake of demonstrating the gospel to the world. It doesn't mean that every relationship, every circumstance, and every resource challenge should just always be endured. What it means is that our bent as people is to not endure anything and just to get out of everything that doesn't make us well. And what Paul says is, no, no, no. Ask a bigger question. What in this circumstance, in this relational dynamic, with this resource challenge will bring the greatest glory to Christ and expand the kingdom and show the planet what it means to follow Jesus so that I can lay down my rights and prerogatives for the sake of this 
incredible kingdom and this amazing king and then make a decision. So he says, okay, so we got who we follow so that we can have our attitudes be the same as Christ so that we are fixed and focused on the one true gospel. And then he says this, he says, um, after he talks about these people, their end is destruction. It's an interesting thing. And, and I, I thought about that as I looked at this passage. Why would he start there? Hey, when you look to people that are kind of pursuing, their, filling their bellies and setting up their own kingdoms, uh, remember their end is destruction. You guys, as you enter the workspaces that you're in and as you enter the realities further on into your life in those spaces, here's something that you will find. I'm kind of giving you a heads up, okay? Uh, you think in your head, I know you do, because we all do, especially those of us that are Christians, that if we go out there into the world and in the workplace and the school place and the relational place, we live a life of faithfulness to God, right? I mean, we're honest, we're full of integrity, we don't lie, we don't steal, we don't scam, that in the end, that will lead to great things in our career and great things. I mean, we all believe that. You know, you got all the jokers around you that are willing to lie and steal and destroy for the sake of their uh, uh, careers. They stab you in the back, but not you. And I mean, sure, at first, they'll kind of have their way, but eventually they'll get caught and they crash and burn and you'll get promoted. I have news for you. It doesn't often work that way. Often they get away with everything. They get promoted into everything you wish you had. And you start thinking to yourself, oh my goodness, like lying, stealing, and manipulating gets you what you want on this planet. And being full of integrity gets you stuck and gets you nowhere. And I promise you, there'll be times in your life where you'll be like, oh my gosh, this ain't working. And what Paul's saying is this, is look, there will be times when those who are filling their bellies and, 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 and their mind is set on planet earth, they will get ahead of you. They will have what you don't have. They will gain what you wish you could. And you will think to yourself, this isn't fair because it's not. But this planet death we're on, this is a war zone. And, and, and the, the, the prince of the air in this planet is the, is, is, the, is the king of death. So like, yeah, sometimes death wins here. But what does he say? There will come a day where our time on this war zone ends and those who had their minds set on this war zone and lived for this war zone will find themselves in a predicament of destruction while we who know Christ and had our eyes fixed on that kingdom and lived for that kingdom will find ourselves realizing freedom like we have never experienced. So if you have to exchange uh, a little lack on this planet because you are actually living a life for Jesus for a glory and wonder of freedom and life and eternity, it's not a hard choice. So he's just saying when you forget that actually the stuff on this planet isn't your well-being, then it won't matter to you nearly as much that everybody's getting ahead of you because they steal, kill, and destroy for it. And because you are living a life for Jesus, you get left behind. You are not left behind. The time is coming. And you will see the glory of Christ as they will know destruction. So actually have empathy for them and share the gospel with them. Okay. So he says all that. Now look what he says. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So Paul reminds us, those of us that are following Jesus, 
He is certainly progressively transforming us into his likeness, both individually and as a community, which then expands his kingdom and demonstrates the gospel to the world and brings light, life, and freedom to the people around us. Wow, that's awesome. But remember, our citizenship, our belonging is to an eternal world, an eternal country. We are on our way there. And we know that because we are awaiting a savior to come back and get us. Now, we know the savior's already come by the, Paul, by the time Paul is writing this. But what he's saying here is he has come, he left. But what did he say when he left? I'm coming back to get you all. Now, I know for us, we kind of say, oh my goodness. I mean, that's great. But when is he coming back exactly? I mean, are we, and people ask me all the time, you think we're in the end times? And I always say, well, we might be. It's quite possible. There's lots of wonderful things happening, earthquakes and other stuff that people write books about that are guaranteed that we're in the end times, except for the fact that for 2,000 years, uh, everybody thought we were in the end times. And so every time there was anything, they were like, oh, definitely end times. And so far, 2,000 years in, they've all been wrong. And so maybe we're right. Maybe if before we die, he comes back, then guess what we all get to say? Told you, I was right. I always laugh because I'm like, you know, people that say it's definitely a boy when someone's pregnant and then it's a boy and they're like, I knew it, I told you. And I'm like, you had a 50-50 shot. If it was a girl, then you just keep your mouth shut and say nothing. But since it's a boy, you're like, I knew it, felt it in my gut. No, you didn't, you guessed. And then the end times are the same for us. I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's this generation. At some point, one of the generations, he's gonna actually return in that way. And they're gonna be like, I knew it. And I'm just gonna be like, whatever, you just got lucky. But here is a point to remember that's very important. Though I do not know when Jesus will return, whether it's in my generation or 20,000 years from now, this I do know, that somewhere in the next 100 years, I will encounter my end times. Because none of us here are going to live past 100. 110 max. 112, you're the oldest person on the planet. So sorry about that. That would be terrible. So I'm just saying, give or take 100 years and you will leave this planet and you will face Jesus face to face. So whether we are living in the end times or not, all of us are. Because all of us are going to leave this planet at some point in the next hundred years. So what Paul's saying is, man, it's a breath that you're living here. And whatever you don't gain here for the sake of gaining Christ, don't worry. Soon enough, you'll have him fully. And then all that will matter is that you awaited a savior and he came for you and you are with him. And remember, when you meet him, who is this savior that is saying to you, I guarantee your well-being. I hold your well-being in my promise. Who is the savior that can make such a promise? And he's like, remember who he is? He's the dude that has the power to have everything be in submission to him. Another way Paul said it in this letter is every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. He is subject to nothing and no one everything and everyone subject to him. And he's the one telling you and me, your well-being is secure in my hand. Paul is simply saying, if you're going to roll your dice on security and well-being, place it all in Jesus because he's safe. Place it anywhere else. And it is fragile at best, but fleeting for sure. And destruction is the end of that. So followers of Jesus, look to him, keep your eyes on the right gospel and lean into each other as you follow Christ together. I always have this imagination in my head of what it's going to be like when I leave this planet. So I have these ideas and I'm like, mm, I wonder if it's going to be like this. So this isn't biblical. Don't go post on some social media. Renault said this fireplace is in heaven because I don't know that they are. And it doesn't say that in Revelation. But I imagine as I walk around eternity that there'll be these fireplaces with people sitting around them because we'll have a lot of time and we need to discuss things. And so fireplaces seem to me a great place to discuss things. And I imagine myself someday sitting down at a fireplace 
and uh, starting to introduce myself, you know, hey, I'm Renault, and then the guy's like, hi, I'm Paul. And I'll be like, any chance, like, AD50, Paul? And he'll be like, yeah, AD50, Paul. I'm like, so Paul, Paul. Like, yeah, call me Paul, Paul. That's fine. Like, That's awesome. <laughs> and then I might go around and be like, hi, how are you? And she might say, hi, I'm Rahab. And I'll be like, well, hold on, like, Rahab Israel, Rahab? And she'll be like, yeah. Do you want to hear more about the story that I only wrote, uh, a little was written about? I'm like, yeah, I can't wait. And then maybe I'll roll past and I'll be like, hey, Susie. And she'll be like, yeah, Susie, 2018, USA. And I'll be like, oh, me too. It's surprising you didn't bump into each other. What fun. And then maybe next I'll roll into a guy and he'll be like, hi, Gideon. And I'll be like, like Gideon, like in the Old Testament, Gideon. He's like, yep, that's the one. And then I'm Renault. And I'm sitting at that fireplace. And one of them says, hey, we got time. Why not share some stories? Tell me about what happened in your life while you were on the planet. Like when I get there, I don't want my story to be about me. I Now remember, we can't lie there, so that'll be awkward. So I've realized I can't like make stuff up. Like, oh man, I was like, I lived for Jesus. It was incredible. And it's all about him. You can't even make stuff about what was going on inside, your motives. You can't even hide those. Like everything's truth there and everything's exposed. So whatever is actually real on this planet is going to come out of my mouth at that fireplace. And what I want coming out of my mouth is stuff that speaks of my motives and of my actions being about the kingdom of God and about the glory of Christ, not just in some things, but in as many as possible. And for the ones that weren't, I want to be able to look to Paul and say, well, you hadn't attained it either. Just FYI, you wrote it down in Philippians. So I feel like there's some things we both missed, but I strove after a consistent life that said more of Jesus, less of everything else. More for Jesus, less for me, less for everything else. And all Paul's saying in Philippians is, let us together lean into each other and follow each other as we all strive for that life that's more of Jesus and less of everything else. More for him and less for me. And let's see what a world sees when they look at a community of people that more and more find all of their well-being, all of their security, and all of their glory in Christ. And everything they do is for him. This is the life I want to live. Not an easy one. Not something we've already attained. Neither me nor you. But something that we should strive together after. And follow each other as we do it. As we all follow Jesus. This is what Paul is getting at. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your extraordinary and, and beautiful clarity that you give us through the letters that you had these guys write. And in this particular one, God, that you would come to us and say, man, listen, um, have your attitude be the same as mine. Uh, sit and rest in and know clearly and, and hold on to only the gospel that is me and lean into each other as you do it, as you will follow me. God, we want to live that life. And so we know that you have given us an extraordinary privilege of having your spirit to empower us, your word to guide us, the biblical community to lean into as we follow each other, as we follow you, and the commands and, and opportunities to constantly remember the gospel and, rem and remember you. So may we be a people that do all those things in consistency so that our lives begin to match what you had Paul write in the letter to Colossae in the book of Colossians, where he said, uh, whatever you do in word or in deed, in action, do it in the name of Jesus with thanksgiving. 
God, may, may that be our life, that we, that we do everything. And our first thought before we do it is, uh, how will this next moment of what I say or what I do best shine light on my King Jesus and his kingdom's philosophies? And whatever I must face in this world for bringing him to the table, whether suffering or glory, let it be so. Because my life is for you now, Jesus. May we be that people. Get us there. Help us get there. Make it so, we pray. In your precious name. Amen.